Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Sessions. We're so glad you're here and we're excited to have an awesome conversation today with um, my two favorite paper mavens in all of the land. Um, We're here today with both Chelsea and Jamie of Sugar Paper. Thank you guys for coming and joining us today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. So, for those of us who don't know kind of what sugar paper is, before we get into the backstory, what is sugar paper? Sugar paper is a letterpress specialty store, but mostly it's a brand. So now we um, we do so many things. So we say we create beautiful things for thoughtful people. And you have three locations, brick and mortar locations, and then of course everything online, right? We do. And the brick and mortars are... Brentwood Country Mart, which is our original, well, it's not exactly our original store, but our Los Angeles store, and then um, Lido Marina Village, which is in Newport Beach, and we're just now opening Marin at the Marin Country Mart. Which is very exciting. Okay, so Brentwood is not the original? It is not the original. Where was the original? I always thought it was. Um, The original was in Century City next to a bakery called Clementine Bakery. Wow. Mm -hmm. For how long? A long time. A long time. (laughs) Really? That was the original location that was where it kind of all started, was in Century City, and there was an empty space available that Chelsea's like... Let's do this. Yeah. Okay, so that's a great place to start. So what did you guys do? I'll ask you first, Jamie. What did you do before you guys got together and decided that sugar paper was a good idea? Actually, I we decided sugar paper was going to happen um, while I was still in college. I think I had recently graduated and I was working as a nanny. And while we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives, we were doing paper on the side. She had kind of started a side business and I was helping her. And so it kind of just happened. And when we started, I still had to work a second job, you know, continue my job. And so I think I opened the store and you closed the store and I would have to go to my other job. And so it was straight out of college. And what were you guys doing at the time? Was it letterpress to begin with? Was that kind of the concept it started, it really didn't start as a business. There was no business. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Both of us I had finished college before Jamie. And I think when you get a degree in anything, so we were both at UCLA, you have this expectation that you're going to go figure out now what you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think for the two of us, while we were figuring out what we were actually going to do, we started a business. And I don't think we even understood that we were starting a business. Did you ever want to be entrepreneurs? Did you know what that was? You know, it was funny because I was thinking about this. So we have really similar upbringings in terms of my dad is a doctor. Her dad is a lawyer. My dad is a teacher. Her mom did interior design. Like we had these very kind of, I don't, normal households. And I I was thinking, like, how is it that we're entrepreneurs? And I think that what I realized is that my dad always had a side hustle. So he was a doctor, but he always was buying real estate or he always had something else. So I watched my dad 
do things like this all the time. And I'll never forget when we did open the Century City store, and that's actually a really funny story. I was standing in the space with the landlord, Corey Brown, and he and my dad were with me, and neither one of them understood. Like, they could not figure out why I was going to sign a lease on a space to sell cards. Like, it just did not resonate with them. But I remember my dad, when we walked out of that negotiation, he kind of pulled me aside and was like, wow, how how do you know how to do that? And I said, well, I don't know. I just watched you. So I was negotiating that lease with this, this real estate guy. It was a really interesting moment. And why did you guys, okay, so you said it wasn't really a business, but but then you started a, I mean, you signed a lease on a physical space. That's a, I'm missing something. Yeah, let's, okay, okay, we're going to yeah. take you back a little okay. further. So I was working in entertainment. So when mm-hmm. I graduated from UCLA, I graduated with a degree in women's studies. And the original intention was that I wanted to speak to young women about body image and self-esteem. That was the dream. So I was, and this is such a, a funny aside, I was volunteering for Planned Parenthood yeah. and I was giving the sex education talk to LAUSD yeah. high school. So I would yeah. go in and give the birth control talk, which is so funny because this is a podcast, but if you see me in real life, I look like Pollyanna. <laughs> so like Gidget would walk in and give like a sex ed talk to, you know, inner city schools. It was just a very strange thing. I think and you it, gave the talk to the the kids I nannied for. Yes, too. I did. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's right. Awesome. Yeah. You're like, I know just the person. Yeah. yeah. So the intention was to do that, but you can't just graduate and become a public speaker. So I needed practice. So that was my practice. But my day job was working in entertainment. So I was the assistant to Brad Gray, who um, ran Brillstein Gray, and then also went on to run Paramount. So Mm -hmm. my first job out of college was interacting with very, very powerful people. And I remember somebody saying to me, if you look up and you don't want anyone's job above you, you're in the wrong place. And so I realized sitting in this job that I had all of this access to all these really interesting things, but I was absolutely miserable. And so what I would do is I would go home and that on my free time, Jamie would come over and we would like go to art stores and we would, I, I, we would just, we just had time. So it was like this thing. So we, we went to an art store in Westwood once And Jamie, I'll never forget it. Jamie walked over to me and she was holding this card and she was like, this is amazing. How, how did they print this? This is beautiful. And we bought the card and it's from a company called Snow and Graham Letterpress. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ebony Snow is a friend of ours. And I went home that night and I started Googling what is letterpress. Well, I think at first we were like, how do they get the impression into the paper? Yeah. Like that doesn't just come out of a printer. How do they do that? And I think the two of us had always kind of agreed without saying it that there was your parents don't encourage you to go into a career in art, Mm-mm. especially mm-hmm. I, I graduated in 99. So especially then it was like, no, you go get the job and then you figure that out. And so I think we just didn't think that was an option. So she was about to graduate. We were really close friends. We spent a lot of time together. She was a nanny. She was looking for a job in nonprofit. Well, you went off and bought a letterpress. Out of nowhere. I did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And just for some context, because I think we've been around letterpress a little bit more now. Yeah. yeah. But back then, 
there. You didn't know how they did that. No, I just happened to know somebody who was in letterpress years later, and you guys were a huge inspiration for her. But I remember even when she started, it was like no one was doing it. It was it was very these very obscure people. She's like, well, there's this woman in New Hampshire who has this, you know, press. Exactly. It was yeah. that sort of. It thing. was like that, and I think we started researching who those obscure companies were because we we just felt connected to this piece of paper, and so we started trying to figure that out, and we did, and I ended up um, really just finding a letterpress for sale on eBay. And there was this man, Percy Blaine, and he was an 80-something-year-old man who I went and met him. My mom went with me, and he showed me the machine, and we bought it. It was just this very strange thing. And I don't know what I was going to do with it. I moved it into the living room of my apartment. And they're huge, heavy machines. This was a tabletop letterpress. So this was like more of a hobby press. Okay. And we just started tinkering with it. But there was no business. Like there, we weren't gonna. There was. We didn't even discuss starting a business. Mm-mm. We were just playing with this letterpress. That was really like one calendar year where Jamie was finishing school. I was having a really hard time figuring out what I was gonna be when I grew up. And then what happened was people found out we had it, and then people would ask, like, "Oh, I'm getting married. Would you be willing to?" print for me. And we started printing. And then at the time we signed the lease, it just, it was this weird thing where she would come over. I tore my ACL. I was on crutches. I couldn't print. She learned how to print. So by the time we were opening a store, we were partners without ever talking about becoming partners. That's not a usual story. I mean, for most people who've been around partners, that's a very unusual, I mean, not that they're friends, that we often hear, but that they didn't come into this with the idea that they were going to partner in some way or that they had the, the outcome would be a business. Do you think that has something to do with the magic of coming together? Potentially. I think that we were like-minded mm-hmm. and we were doing the things that we were, pa- that we were doing art together. But we um, were also working together. And so we had kind of proof of partnership. Is that a thing? Yeah, it is now. So yeah. yeah. So it felt like we, I knew what it was like to work on a project with her and I liked it. It worked. Like we knew that. But I will say when we told our parents that we were going to open a retail store selling all of those obscure artists work, because that's really the origin story of Sugar Paper is that we were opening a store to sell other people's work and sell custom stationery that we were printing. Um, everyone told us not to do it, that it was just a terrible idea. And was the advice based on it being a brick and mortar or was the advice based on, oh, now you're having to be essentially buyers, you're paper buyers and you have this other custom. None of that. That wasn't why so we what shouldn't. Was it? Well, first of all, when Chelsea, when I think we met for coffee and she's like, I, I have this idea, there's this space available and I think we should open a store. And I'm like, you're crazy. Like, yeah. And then I think I'm like, okay, and I'm in. (laughs) And apparently I'm crazy too. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, Jamie's dad's an an attorney. So he was like, absolutely not. I've watched partnerships dissolve Mm. many, many times. This is a terrible idea. Do you have a partnership agreement? What is your plan? So that was the concern. That was the concern. More than the idea. A a partnership agreement, having. We were broke. Formalities. (laughs) None of this was a good idea. Do you actually think, though, being broke, it's interesting 
having done some partnership divorces in yeah. my time, do you think that some of that was you had nothing to lose in equal measure? Like, yes, like, absolutely. No one was bringing XYZ to the table and then the other person was trading sweat equity or whatever, but you both really didn't have anything except this idea. Yeah, we had nothing to lose. And you had said proof of partnership yeah. earlier. You, you know, you said, I don't know if it's a term, and I think it should be a term of art because often people will go into it based on the friendship and not spend time or, or whatever the relationship is and not spend time understanding how the two work together. And we're going to get into that a little bit more, okay. but let's stay with your story. So you start out, you open this store, you're selling other brands, and then you have this custom business where people can, for weddings or having, you know, ba babies or whatever all the things are, they can order X amount of cards that you customize for them. And when do you start to find out that that's a good idea and maybe that's actually going to catch on? First of all, when we opened the store, we had decided, it, and when we opened in 2003, mm -hmm. stationary stores were very almost confusing. You walked in and there's this wall of books on the wall and all of these custom albums, but it was very intimidating to be like, um, excuse me, can I reach up there and get that album down and look at what's in there? So you, you kind of had to know how to do it to or it look felt, at custom stationery. Yeah. It also felt like you had to make a commitment to work with this person and you might not be able to make that commitment. So you, it just felt there was a barrier of entry mm -hmm. And we felt that people loved these things and wanted to see and touch them. Mm -hmm. So we kind of deconstructed that experience so that people could interact with beautiful things without feeling that strange feeling. So I don't know if you've ever been in a luxury paper store. Like if you've ever yeah. been to Smythson, I mean, there's a room you walk it into. I just feel like I can't afford it just exactly. looking at it. I'm like, the, the, these people are too fancy for me. Yes. Yeah. And we didn't like that because we loved paper. And so we wanted it to feel different. So approachable. I think, approachable. And I think part of the reason we have a hard time answering when you say like, what is sugar paper? Is that there have been so many iterations of what sugar mm -hmm. paper is. We started as paper lovers who wanted to bring this art form out. So the only store that I knew like Sugar Paper was a store called Sulip mm -hmm. over across from the design center. And I remember going who was in, in there. New, I knew him from New York. Oh, so, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so I would go into that store. I remember I bought Brad Gray his Christmas card there and it was an $18 card, but I just, I would have gifts wrapped there, but I had never seen that wasn't really around. There was paper, mm -hmm. papyrus and paper source wasn't really even a thing mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just wanted to create a different experience. But we didn't we didn't make wedding invitations when we opened the store. We only made stationery in the retail store. And then we sold other people's wedding invitations oh, and we wow. sold other people's products. But we didn't even make birthday cards. So, so when did you guys say, well, <laughs> wait a minute, we're missing an opportunity here? Well, a couple years in, with our stationery, we built something called, we called the stationery wall. So we had shelves and we had all the stationery out so people could grab it and feel it. And so I felt like early on, people would come in and suddenly we just started selling a lot of stationery and people were telling friends. And so we 
It took off. It took off fairly quickly. And I think it was probably a couple weeks into opening. And I don't think Chelsea was in the store at the time, but Reese Witherspoon walked in. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm going to call y'all. And so. Okay. Yeah. Reese, call yeah. us. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so she had us do stationery for a office shoot for InStyle. And that was our first press. And so I, I felt like pretty early on we had this swell. Yeah. Like group of women that loved paper that really supported us and they told their friends and so it happened fast. So it's easy to go back and kind of find that little bit of lightning that you were able to capture. But yeah, what, and I, what I was also, going on? Like what was going on with people and paper? Because that seems crazy now with everything being so digital. Was there something happening at the time and you were about to say something as well? Chelsea? Well, I just, I was going to say those women are still our clients. And so it's also really interesting when you, like, you know, we would love to even talk about that because I think right now with high growth companies, it's all about growth numbers. But for us, it was always about people. Mm -hmm. So we worked the store. We knew those women. We, if they said, you know, my best friend's daughter's graduating next week, is there any way you can print stationery for her? The answer was always yes, because we needed to make this business work. It was, it's, it was such an old-fashioned way of running mm. a store of you matter enough to stay up late tonight to make that happen so that she gets that thing next week. And so I think we just built a business the old-fashioned way. It's interesting that you're saying that because you're talking about customer service and there's nothing old-fashioned about customer no. service. And um, last week we interviewed one of your friends. We interviewed Allie Webb of Drybar and she talked a lot actually about the biggest difference with Drybar being customer service and that she saw her parents in their retail store being dogged about how you treat a customer and they insisted on that same level of service. And she said, I really think that's kind of what made it for us. Yes, we had a strong brand, but people came back Mm -hmm. because of the customer service. So for you, when we first started the conversation and you said, actually, Sugar Paper is a brand, um, it sounds like part of the brand wasn't just, it, it is a beautiful brand. It's like eye candy, but it sounds like a part of it for you guys was we're going to be kind of lifelong partners with these people through these different celebratory moments in life and gifting moments in life. And we're going to do that by developing this relationship with them the old-fashioned way. The old-fashioned way. But I also think what we maybe didn't understand, I think for us, you know, Jamie and I both grew up, our parents had us write thank you notes, like manners Mm -hmm. was a thing, please and thank you. It was just what you do. It was just how you behave in the world. I think what we have learned since then is that we sell so much more than paper. And so I I think oftentimes people will say, oh, through these life events, but these life events are, that is what life is. Mm -hmm. Babies, weddings, um, somebody dying. These are the most emotional things that happen. And we are part of that in a way, I, I think part of the thing we're the most proud of is that when there's all of these cards on our walls and we will never know what someone writes inside of that card, but we know that we are just pouring love into the world. Mm. So I think that like just by the nature of what we make, it's so connected to people. And so for us, I think it's just, it's more than just selling 
an invitation. When you guys figured that out, that that was really kind of your secret sauce, what shifted in the business or the way you did business? A huge shift was company culture Mm -hmm. and staff and making sure that everybody was aligned with our values. I mean, Chelsea did a ton of work on defining our company values and culture and how do we translate that down to the to everybody that works for us because with three retail locations, we can't be at each store in every moment. And I feel like the people that are interacting with our customers are our brand ambassadors. They're the, the people that are, you know, there to help them with those special occasions. So I, and think, I think for a while that was lost and it was really heartbreaking because there was a point where the two of us could not work the store. It's just, it's just impossible. And so we started to feel that kind of dissolving. And so we couldn't figure out how do we, and I think for me, I was really upset about it, but not in a nice way. I was like, how to come? They don't understand. Why can't they do it the way we do sure. it? And it took, it took us stopping and defining what, I don't even think we knew how we mm-hmm. did it. We had was never thought about it. Was it because it was just part of your personality or because it was the level of commitment to your own business? It was that. Okay. I mean, when, so when our landlord at the Country Mart, who we adore, and he's also our landlord in Marin, um, you know, I think for him, like he always said, I, I only have tenants who have serious businesses because when you run a business that has to work, you run it very differently Mm. and not in like, um, an icky way, like we, it meant so much to us. We, it, it's, it wasn't casual. And sure. so I think the way that we treated our customers wasn't casual. And when we ultimately left the store, it started to feel like, you know, girls smacking gum working at the gap. And that isn't okay for us. And it's, it's changed since then. But when you decided you needed to help shape that culture or because there was an internal shift with you guys or an internal recognition of what kind of what made sugar paper what were some of the things that were core values because i i know a lot of our listeners who it might be a single solopreneur who has a part-time employee and that woman may be starting to think about how do i pass off some of these duties and know that that person will manage it the way i would want them to manage it and soon enough, there's three people, and then there's four people, and then those values get lost. And it's hard to sort of kind of take the reins again again, and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. But the first thing they need to do is identify the what. like, And what is a value? What do we insist upon as a brand? So what were some of those things for you guys? I mean, we can rattle them off quickly. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> trust, do. honesty, love, hardworking. It's, there's just, there's something there that everybody who works for the company in this moment of time has. And when we interview, we don't even really ask them about their past experience. It's all about what's the last card that you sent? Who did you send it to? Why did you send it? Because when they can um, kind of geek out with us about that, we know there are people and we know that they get it. But if they don't know how to answer what's the last card you sent and who did you send it to, we know that they can't work for us. It just doesn't work. They don't even understand the concept of literally writing a note and sending it, which is that harder to come by 
as you're it's, interviewing It's harder people. to come by in the world, but what you'll find in anything that you're interested in is that there is a tribe for that. Sure. So it's actually surprising, you know, I feel like millennials get such a bad rap, but it's surprising how connected younger people are to analog things because they're so used to digital content. So we say sometimes, you know, would you rather get a card in the mail or would you rather get a HBD on your Facebook wall? There's no, yeah. there's no brainer, yeah. you know, yeah. of course you want that feeling of someone who took the time to write that to you. Does it feel more precious um, in terms of what they're willing to pay for it and what they're, even just the way that they deliver it, it's got to be a pretty envelope and like, is it a benefit to what you guys are doing? It, yeah. And I think it's more precious because it can be saved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we kind of recently, we were like, oh, we're, we're the moments that can be tucked away and saved forever. Um, and in fact, Chelsea was going through her box of keepsakes. Um, I don't know. I was, was moving. It, you're moving. Yeah. And she found a card that I had written her back, must have been when we were friends. 2002. Saying, 2002, <laughs> yeah. saying, let's start a project together. And that seems so funny now because now we have this huge project that obviously we started together. (laughs) Um, But we wouldn't have remembered that had she not saved that. Oh, that's You guys need to frame that and that needs to be a big part. I I don't think she would let me frame it because it was written in like a a blue calligraphy pen. (laughs) Where she was like, oh my gosh. You know, now our aesthetics are a little different. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they are. So, okay, I have a question that's kind of about in this digital space where more and more people are staying away from brick and mortar and we're hearing the stories of retail that seem to be diminishing, vanishing altogether. And then we're starting to hear this other story where retailers are like, wait a minute, we can um, excite the customer, we can engage the customer, we can, we, we become a place, almost a show place to entertain the customer. What is that like for you guys who have made an intentional decision to open now your third store? I think that's what excites us most is, um, especially with what we do, the paper and, um, the gifts and the pretty things like for us, it's an experience. So it's an experience in that you're inspired with everything Mm. Around and also, you. you you don't go online to buy a $6 card. I mean, people do because they're on our site and they might buy 10 $6 cards. Sure. So our digital space is working too. But there's something about that where, you, I mean, you have to be very organized to be online getting those things ahead of yeah. time. So what happens in our store is that people come in and they get to be inspired by those messages on the wall. So we'll watch people standing in front of our card wall for a long time because you don't realize that this card inspired that friendship or you think about somebody. What we do is an experience that isn't ours. It's the customer's experience. So a lot of times we'll tell the, like the girls in the store, give them space because you don't know if their daughter's graduating from high mm-hmm. school or if their best friend just found out they have cancer. Some of those are happy moments. Some of those are very sad moments. So it's a very emotional store. I mean, a lot of what we sell are these huge emotions. It's it's very cool. And a lot of gifting too. So yeah. it's like, you know, again, like Amazon, you don't buy cards on Amazon and gift wrap on Amazon is is not the same either. 
how does that inform the percentage of the store that's dedicated to cards or even the, the stationery that they're there to customize, some other gifts, there are books, there, there are other mm-hmm. pretty things there. So how do you know what percentage of the store should be what based on what you're trying to ultimately create in the customer experience? I feel like this is something like we're always trying to perfect and sure. tweak, but um, we sell the most, the category we sell the most of is cards. Not but counting our custom business. And so it's so interesting to me, of it, again, like sending love into the world. It's like we're selling a ton, we're selling a ton of, of cards. cards. Like So the, that's kind of the highest frequency purchase. The custom doesn't take a lot of space. So we don't need a lot of square footage mm. for that. So that's interesting, but that's our highest margin sale. Um, and then the retail piece is really Jamie's domain, so I should let her speak to that. But we're constantly telling stories in the store. So we turn our entire inventory multiple times a year. You'll never. It used to be that if you walked into a stationery store, it would they would have the same inventory for five years. Like you would just see the same things sure. that you saw the last time you were there a year and a half ago. Our store, when you walk in, we're telling a completely different story every a couple months, yeah. Mm-hmm. Based on kind of the celebratory seasons? No. Okay. So it's so funny. Okay. I mean, yes, like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, okay. Christmas. Yes. Like we have to hit those. We're telling stories that inspire us. So I'm, I don't know. Why don't you talk about some of the stories you're telling right now? Well, I think so Mother's Day was something that, you know, obviously it's cards, but we've leaned into Mother's Day gifting. And right now it's summer. And so I think it's more like what what are we inspired by in the moment? And then we always um, tell stories by color. So we'll lean into a color story. We'll lean, in, lean into kind of a feel, a theme. And then we buy to that to kind of tell complete the story. Yeah, to, to change things up. Because our line, we have our products, but we're not able to change our products every two months. So bringing in other people's products helps curate a different assortment through the year. I think, too, some of the things that are something that people don't know about Sugar Paper is that our roots are in retail. So going back to your original question, what do you think about retail? Well, we don't think about it. That's just how we – that is who we are. So that's – we understand – I mean, we think about a lot. Don't get me wrong. But that's – it wasn't that we started – you know, digital native brand and then opened a retail store. We opened a retail store and then everything came after. And we have retail, wholesale, online partnerships, custom, like we're running multiple models. So when, when you ask what is sugar paper, we're a brand because we're, we're, we're really playing in a lot of different spaces. When did you, how long were you in business before you started selling wholesale? When was Kate born? 2012. <laughs> 2011. <laughs> so we started wholesale in 2012. Yeah. So I think it's important, again, for the listener to realize that here you were retail, multiple brands, your own brand, and then years later, you incorporate this next level of wholesale. Many um, years later, which I think is also part of what we teach the team because we had been in business for eight years before we thought about taking it to a trade show. So we had we had some experience. And part of the beauty of retail is that when we started playing with the idea of wholesale, we knew what the customer wanted because yeah. we talked to her every day. And what a great thing to be able to tell buyers. Mm-hmm. We've yes. been on your end. We know what 
um, what the customer wants. We've been listening to them for years and years and years. So we're not we're not just trying to push this. We actually understand them in a way that um, I think you might. that's actually how it started. Was we kept running out of bat mitzvah cards. <laughs> And not a lot of companies made bat mitzvah cards. So That's we were like, we're just going to make one so that we always have That's it. So we have all the materials. Why aren't we making our own? And then we started making a couple different cards. And then I feel like Chelsea was like, wait, wait, wait. We got to put this like through a brand lens. And so like, oh, there's some stuff on the internet that I'm like, oh my God. I know, but isn't that... But, you have to almost go through some of that, right? You're talking about your yeah, own stuff like that you put out. We just started making. Like, we yeah. didn't yeah. know who we were as a brand. We hadn't defined it. We we were selling everyone else's things. And so yeah. we we had a similar, like our houses have, I mean, if you walk into one of our houses, they're the same. I mean, not really, but like I right. have stripes, she has stripes. I mean, it's we're, our aesthetic is very similar. We had never thought about what that meant or a sugar paper product line. And so the original product line, you know. You've evolved. <laughs> yeah. We've all yeah. evolved. Yeah. And, and that's the good thing because you're listening to the customer, but you're also listening to yourself and what you want to put out in the world based on what already exists and what doesn't exist. I mean, the idea of there was a niche that hadn't been filled is brilliant. Well, and, then, and, and there wasn't Instagram and there wasn't, there weren't, mm -hmm. it didn't feel so daunting to make a mistake in that way. We just started making things and we started seeing if people liked them, but it didn't feel like it, we were putting our, you know, flag in the sand. It was, and now that some of those things are on the internet and I, I don't love them, but now I, we know who we are. <laughs> Does that mean if a, if a stationary duo came to you, and I'm sure this has already happened and said, hey, we're developing this brand and it's going to be whatever, laser cut paper, what, whatever they're doing and any advice you can give us. And here you are looking at them in this very viral digital time where the brand is captured and kind of forever, like seared in the memory of the, the potential user. What's your advice to them? Be careful understand the brand right away, hire a branding consultant. I mean, I don't know because I didn't start the business that way, but I will tell you what we've learned over and over is define it, define it, define it. And so that goes to brand, that goes to culture, that goes to have a point of view. Yeah. And have your own point of view. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question because so as a consultant, I often say this, and I don't always take my own advice. I'll tell you that. It, because it can get really, really scary when you ask somebody to define their point of view and they're so afraid they're going to leave a segment of the market out, mm -hmm. right? So whether it's they don't want to leave a segment of uh, the market in terms of demographic, like they don't want to say I'm 35 to 50 because they're afraid they're missing the early 30-year-olds or the 60-year-olds or whatever. How do you advise someone on the benefits of, and this is probably for most things in life, for dating, for picking a college, for so many things, like how we define this. What's your sort of like, you really need to lean into that and be more specific. What do you say to that woman that's like, oh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to miss something. I think that one thing that comes to mind is um, when you start designing things or building or creating products, for all things, for all people, it's do you love it? Do you want to use it? 
Are you excited about it? It has to, from your lens, be something you want to use. That's how we define it. But I also feel like all things for all people just means you or nothing you to have no nothing. one is what I, yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, I was giggling and kind of looking to see if Jamie was going to call me out on this, but I am like a Seth Godin devotee. Mm-hmm. I just adore him. He's a friend of mine. I, I just, what his message really is, is please leave people out. That's mm-hmm. how you get ahead. That's how this works. So there are things that I think are cool that they're just not appropriate for the sugar paper brand. Mm-hmm. So we leave it out on purpose. And it's really powerful because once you do that, you know how to make decisions very quickly. And you probably don't confuse or complicate the message to the correct user, to the right user, to the person who ultimately is going to be your fan. Well, and the correct user, they're your people. Yeah. So they just know, they love it as much as you love it. So it's And you get to experience a different kind of relationship yeah. with your client and even... I think we struggled a bit when we partnered with Target because we were used to one-on-one relationships, emailing everyone back, saying hello, opening the door for somebody that has a stroller. And it felt like, how do we translate that to 1,700 stores? And, And I think what we realized is that those are our clients too and that they see it and they know. And so it's it's so fascinating to me now. I'll meet people that will say, I was introduced to your brand through Target and I love it. And it's, it's, it's just been amazing to see that you can be that narrow and live in a huge big box store. That that's what, that's the reason they want to partner with us. So that actually happened to me just this weekend. I was telling my niece that I was going to be interviewing you guys and she went and showed me her (laughs) target purchased day, um, day timer or planner that she uses in college, but she doesn't know about the store in California or the three stores in California. Um, So let's talk about that for a minute. Target, how does, how do you go from that kind of bespoke experience and you guys are curating everything and it's this very um, kind of high touch experience to we're going to be collaborating with Target and we're going to be in all these end caps all over the country. What it, How did that come to be first mm-hmm. and foremost? And then I think what did you, what were your concerns in terms of, are we going to lose out? Are we going to alienate or upset in any way the, the, the person who's been spending $6 on a card or whatever? So those two questions. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, yeah. I will yeah. tell you. Yeah. So it came about um, kind of by accident. So when we originally started selling to Target, we did not partner directly with Target. Another company approached us and asked us to make a planner. And so we're letterpress printers. You print in one or two colors. You print, you know, on a single card or maybe a folded card. So the idea of printing 365 unique pages is not possible on a letterpress. So when they asked us, it just seemed fun. So -hmm. we were like, yeah, planners are so terrible. Why do they have to be so terrible? So we started making planners just because we thought they could use a facelift. And then luckily we have a really good girlfriend who is our licensing agent and just happens to live on our street and, you know, gave us really good advice because had we not had someone reading that contract, we it could have gotten to a weird place. Um, but we had committed to only sell in Target stores. 
And so I don't because think the deal was with the person who was manufacturing the vendor planner that sold to was Target. It, okay, it would yeah. go but it to could multi- have gone yeah. to you know right. all different big box stores. Okay. And so she negotiated the contract to only go to Target stores. And I don't think we thought much of it other than this was like a little thing we were going to do and probably no one would notice. At Target? At Target. But I mean, our brand, our store is the size of a postage stamp. Like we were just like our own in our, in the paper world, maybe someone knew who sugar paper was, but we were just kind of doing our thing. And so I'll never forget, we made these planners. They were really beautiful. And we had taken some lifestyle photos of them and I'll never forget because I still had alerts on my phone anytime someone liked a photo. And so I posted a photo of these planners and said, available tomorrow, November 1st at Target. And I copied the at Target, you know. And my phone just started, like, going. And so I could tell, like, our customers were like really excited about it. So I turned my phone off and I went to bed. And the following morning, because of East Coast time, we had just like hundreds of comments of people saying, I went to this store. It's not here. It's not there. I've driven to four targets. Like it was just kind of this amazing thing that I don't think we anticipated. And then because what happened was that our deal was not with Target. It was with this other manufacturer, Sugar Paper's name was not on the product in Target system. So people were tweeting at Target, where is Sugar Paper? Can't find Sugar Paper. Oh, searching it. Asking people to go in the back room of the stock room and, and see if there oh was Sugar gosh. Paper. And so um, it just created this thing. And then we got a call from Target that said, you know, my boss's boss's boss said, who is Sugar Paper and what do they make for, for us? And so then we we actually flew to Target and had a real meeting about future projects and then and then and then several yeah we've done some really really amazing things there and we've learned a ton we had no idea about any like we didn't even know what licensing was but you had a friend we had a friend (laughs) i love that and so really quickly so the person who's spending money at sugar paper and customizing things were they at all affected by the target end cap kind of experience? Did they feel like that diminished their their experience of the brand? I don't I, I don't think our customers in our retail channel were threatened by the partnership. I actually think they were excited about it. Yeah. I think they thought the, the Target collaboration was cool and they wanted it. They wanted what was in our store and the Target planners. It was our boutique channel, so who we wholesaled product mm-hmm. to, that was very threatened. Because Back when we first did it, it was kind of one or the other, big box or boutique. You didn't really play with both. Sure. So I feel like we kind of cross lines there. But in the fashion industry, right, we often have a kind of, you know, Ralph Lauren's purple label and then there's Ralph and then there's Polo and Ralph Lauren and on and on or Donna Karen and DKNY. I think I just aged myself. But (laughs) but there are these designer labels and then these sort of sportswear or junior labels. Is that not happening or was that not happening outside of something like fashion? It wasn't happening in the stationary world. And if you think about stationary stores, these are stores that are kind of your local, right? It's stores that have been there for 25, 35 years. And I feel like these store owners 
were really upset with us that they had something special and we had taken something to target. But I think what they didn't understand and what we really took the time to explain as much as we could is that we weren't making anything for Target that we were selling to them. I almost asked, thank you for mm-hmm. saying that, because I almost asked you, were you making a day timer or a planner? No. Okay. So yeah, yeah there, there was no competition in terms of the type of product. And yet some of them were threatened. So what did you do to sort of alleviate those concerns? Well, I think what we settled in on is our mission is to make beautiful things for thoughtful people. Mm -hmm. So to us, that meant, you know, bringing design to lots of people. Um, And so we didn't want to limit ourselves in that way. And so I think it was a lot of conversation. I mean, we we had trade shows, right? So our, our, our store owners would come right up to us and tell us how upset they were. So these were live conversations, really uncomfortable feedback loops. But I think for us, um, we're okay with that. We're comfortable being authentic and having those conversations and explaining that we're store store owners too. We we absolutely can see it from your perspective. Um, And that's why we don't make what we sell you there. Which would be enough to... I, I mean, think if so. I were on the other side, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think also, though, you know, and, and the target relationship has been such an interesting one because we love them. We love working with them. We love Minnesota. That I mean, is so nice to hear about a big company, right? That's not a story we often hear. So that's... Yeah. I mean, obsessed. We love them. We love our design team. Wow. Yeah. We we just... It's It's been a really great relationship and we've learned so much learned from so them. Much. So, but the interesting part about our target relationship is it's been complicated because a lot of our advisors, a lot of like, you know, private equity guys or Mm -hmm. people who give us advice have said, be careful, you're playing with fire. You you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be putting a luxury line of products in that store. And it's not, it's not turned out to be true for us that it's really been, we've been able to play in both spaces really happily there's been some uncomfortable conversations with store owners, but for the most part, I think we've been really respectful to keep those products very separate. So the lesson for those listening is if you're going to do something like that and split the sort of brand up in some way, make sure that they're not competing products. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll take that. So I want to transition into, because so many people are listening and are here today because they want to hear about this partnership story. And I will tell you that, again, my other job, my consulting job, it's probably one of the hardest conversations I have to have with people. Um, It can be when they come in and they say, hey, I'm considering taking a partner. And so I meet with both of them and realize quickly that they haven't had much of a conversation. It's a little bit like premarital counseling. Like you find out that they don't really know what they want or how many kids they want to have or Mm -hmm. if they want to have kids or how much money is enough money to buy a house or whatever, all those things. And you ask a few questions and you realize you guys kind of need to go back to the drawing board and be, I'm glad you love each other and that you love to shop and eat bagels, but (laughs) we need to kind of get to the bottom of why you're doing this, what the value is, what you both see the future of this business looks like. One may want to sell, one may... And things that you think people would have had conversations about and they haven't. The other conversation I have, which is even worse, is when they come in and they say, 
it's we're, we're not able to see eye to eye and we can't sort of figure out either why or can you please convince the other person that I'm right which is kind of what they <laughs> mean yeah and again you ask a few questions and realize that had they done some homework had they done their due diligence they might not be here they may not have been partners to begin with had they done some of that work so I'd love to just get a little bit into that with you guys we got to hear that it was pretty organic that you guys were friends um, that you had this shared love and it began to unfold and thankfully it worked out well. But I have to believe that that probably didn't just happen every single day, like in this rainbows and unicorns kind of the uh, Pollyannic way that there were some hard things that you had to deal with. So can you guys sort of tell us from when you started, like what was the partnership agreement as you saw it in your mind, even if it wasn't formal, although with a father that's an attorney, I have to believe that you probably had to, to deal with that. And then what did you sort of morph through over the years that made you say, okay, this is how we're going to address this partnership emotionally and otherwise. So start with the, how did it start? Well, I'm looking at Jamie because I'm wondering if she's, I mean, it's like, we didn't do any of the work that you're talking about. Yeah. And so thank goodness we're sitting here and really like one another because we didn't ask those questions. There was no discussion about what if one person wants to sell and the other person doesn't. But there were things that happened along the way that kind of guided the relationship that have been really important. I think you would agree with that. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you want to add some color to that our partnership agreement do you remember we went to um yeah what is it what is it <laughs> where did you go we the people <laughs> well that was for our, our limited partnership yeah. right we I think we drafted a partnership agreement I I don't know if it would even hold guide, up in yeah. uh, hold up in any yeah. anything but I think um going back to and kind of going off of what you said it is like a marriage and before you marry somebody, you want to make sure you want to go to the same place, mm -hmm. that you're on the same path together, that you like the same things, that you enjoy doing some of the same things, so that really like-minded. And I felt like from our friendship and from working together, we, we knew that about each other. Mm -hmm. I think what we hadn't experienced yet is how we were going to deal with conflict. How mm -hmm. are we going to fight? How are we going to make up? And I think that's something we learned along the way. And I will say, and I don't know when, but at a certain point in a partnership, you can play tit for tat, you can keep score, you can mm. calculate what one's doing and what's the other is doing. But at a certain point, you have to decide not to do that. Mm-hmm and to get in the trench with each other and make a decision that you're going to have each other's back. And I think that is the, the one thing is making the decision that makes the biggest. You know, I do yeah. remember. It does sound like a marriage. It, it, yeah. it is. And yeah. I think we made a choice to protect one another. And I think I will, I will say the very first Christmas that so Christmas season in a stationary business is it's crazy. Is, is, is sure. a crazy time. And I remember we closed for a week every Christmas and Jamie went home and I went home and we were so tired. And I think our family had never really seen 
us like that. And so I think individually there was a lot of questions of like, well, if you're this tired, what is she doing? And vice versa. And I just remember in that moment thinking, wow, like that could be very troublesome. Um, it can be toxic. And get yeah, really and those questions. And, and like we do have different families and different groups of friends and different conversations and cocktail parties. And still to this day, there's a lot of questions about the partnership as if um, one of us is doing more than the other. And I think we just always decided that we weren't going to play that game. There was a story that I think is funny in the very beginning. When we first opened our first store, and I can't remember what we got in a disagreement about, but we <laughs> so both funny. got... Are we like two years in? Oh, no. Oh. I think it's the first year. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. Yeah. And, you know, we have this little store, and I... I don't know if I left. I got so mad. I, we both were so mad, and I think I left, and then I think she left. Well, we, I remember you said, I'm out of here, and I was like, oh, no, you don't. I'm out of here. <laughs> and we were literally both sitting in a car, in each of our own cars, with an unlocked retail store with nobody who worked there, <laughs> like kind of playing chicken, chicken of who's going <laughs> to was actually going to leave. So, yes, there's conflict. Had you had <laughs> any of that in your friendship? Not, not really. So that was new. That was brand new territory for both of you. That first year was definitely like there was conflict that we didn't really know how to handle or what to do with. But it wasn't like constant conflict. It would be there's stress, yes, right? There's things you don't know how to do. There's so much learning. You're tired. Um, so I think I mean, I think that's that an important out. part of the story is that we didn't have anyone who worked for us. So we would unlock the store in the morning. We would sell everything, run the register, and we would take the orders and we would go typeset the orders because we were doing the design. Then we would drive across town. We had a, a letter press now bigger than the hobby press at a, at a friend of mm -hmm. mine at her home. We would print orders until sometimes 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And then we would Rochambeau of who was going to open the store the next day. I mean, it was... Nonstop. It was nonstop. But we were also 20-something and not married. Yeah. And it's it was kind of... It felt exhilarating, too, to a certain point. And then it was just really exhausting. So how does somebody know how to manage a relationship, a, a business partnership, when they don't even know kind of what they're getting in. I mean, you couldn't have anticipated that particular fight and said, <laughs> I just okay. realized like we were married to each other before we were married to our husbands. Yeah. I'm we sure got married, married after. <laughs> yeah. Your husbands have probably benefited from your prior marriage. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, they potentially, yeah, I think we're basically <laughs> all kind of married yeah. now at this point. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah. it's true, right? Yeah. When you think about all of those things, one thing that I think it, you said we had each other's back. You talked about, I don't know if you said it, but essentially the kind of trust that mm -hmm. you would have to have for one another and the way you speak about one another to other groups of friends. There has to be a level of maturity. There has to be sort of an ego check that one... Well, I will say she's, she's the even one. She's the even yes. one. But that doesn't mean... And I appreciate that in any relationship, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily mean that both of you, even if one person is even, that both people don't have a standard of how to treat another person or don't have an ego that 
they understand how much of it is their stuff and how much of it is like, okay, this is, this is something, there's something between us. There's something in the relationship. I mean, I think, I do think, and I say this to my husband, I think both Jamie and my husband taught me how to be that, what Mm -hmm. you're talking about. I, I, wasn't that way. I didn't come to the partnership that way. I um we had a business coach once say about our partnership that we're the tortoise and the tiger. And that sometimes like the tiger will grab the tortoise, she meant me, and will just like run with the tortoise. And sometimes the tiger just has to get on the tortoise's back and let them like walk you across the finish line. And I think it was like kind of weird when she said it to me, but I was like, it's kind of accurate. Like Jamie is very even and I sometimes push on an idea and then she pulls on the idea and then we somehow level off. I'm much less hot headed than I was when we started. She taught me that. Did she teach you that it was the result of being steady, good for the business, and so you were willing to learn that lesson? No, our friend, uh, sh- I think it, I think both were good for the business. Okay. I think her pushing was absolutely good for the business. And I think um, in conflict, you learn, right? And so I think um, listening to the other person and trying not to react, you can you can still hear what they're saying sure. even if you don't agree. I think the friendship was always the most important thing because you have to understand we did not start a business to make a bunch of money. We didn't even think about the money. We made the art. That was the purpose. So when things happened and it was exciting like Target and one store here and maybe a store there and a you know, there were, there were, we had all these little kind of things, exciting things happen. That was all great. But the underlying thing was that I wasn't going, our values are such, our ethics are such that I'm not looking to hurt this person. Mm. But sometimes stress is in the way. But at the end of the day, I was more interested in whether or not our friendship was sound. But if you put it back in the category of a marriage and to expect no conflict is unrealistic. Sure. Sure. So I think for people going into partnerships, expect conflict, but it's how do you navigate it? Mm -hmm. How do you talk about it? And how do you make it constructive? So there's some things that a partnership agreement can take care of. Things like we've talked about a few of them, like who wants to sell, who doesn't want to sell, what, you know, um, who does what within the business, what are the various rules. But then there are things like conflicts that you you couldn't possibly come up with each scenario or every scenario that would uh, arise in a in this relationship in order to kind of create some document that like addresses each one. So what do you leave room for? What do you say, okay, this just is going to happen and this is how we're going to deal with it. Have you decided there's a cooling off period? Have you decided that? I mean, you have to understand it's kind of like we don't really, I mean, maybe we will again. I don't know. We don't really it doesn't fight happen anymore. That, yeah. Like it's not, it, it was really early that we were like, whoa, this is not what we thought we signed up for. I mean, when we signed a lease, like we are we are on the line for five years. We have committed. So that was very alarming. I think that might have been the stress that created more conflict. Now, 
you know, I don't want to run this business without her. Mm. It's just a different, it's, it's like we laugh a lot. Like there's a lot of just ridiculous things that happen at the Sugar Vapor office and it's why we have so much fun. So if, if tomorrow she said, I, I don't want to do this anymore, I'd be like, all right, I guess I don't either. Just because I think it's, it's what makes it work. I mean, yeah. As the two of you. I mean, we also live on the same street. Our kids are friends. Like, it's all a little crazy. We go on vacation together. That's amazing. <laughs> it's, 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 it is very sweet, but it's amazing. And I, I hope people listening understand that it's not usual, mm-hmm. but that it's possible. And I don't think that yours is one to necessarily strive for. Like I would recommend, I can tell, I'm going to recommend this podcast to some people. And I'm not going to say, because you guys, uh, the goal isn't to go be best friends like Jamie and Chelsea and to do everything together. And, but it, but we don't do everything together. And I will say, I think the takeaway really is that we made a choice to make it healthy. And that's, I think, the the defining difference Mm. is that I talk to people who are in relationships like business partnerships and and what I'm hearing them say is it's not okay. Like the the individual perspective, I'm I'm thinking, oh, that she's your partner. She's not your enemy. Yeah. You said something to me. I'm going to bring it up. Um, When we were talking last week, I think, and you could be the same scenario that you're talking about right now, but where you said, when people come to me and talk about kind of the partnership agreement and lawyering up, you often say like, be careful, this person isn't your enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you navigate that line of being careful, protecting, not protecting yourself from the other person, but protecting kind of the vision or protecting, maybe it's not an even partnership and you don't know that until you sort of navigate these things. So how do you ride that very fine line? Or what would you say to somebody? Would you say just ask more questions before you in- involve a lawyer? I mean, I would suggest working together on something yeah. to just kind of see. I, I remember, I mean, there, there's, a, there's something that goes on with people who work at Sugar Paper that all of us have something in common where you just like pick up the box and you walk it upstairs. Like everyone rolls up their sleeves and works. And people who don't make it at Sugar Paper don't have that quality. So the reason we work well together is that we're both willing to do the work. Mm. So there's never a time where the other person kind of leaves the other person to struggle. It's I mean, I don't do her job and she doesn't do mine, but we're very involved in the outcome of each of our jobs. And we're constantly soundboarding off one another. So, you know, we haven't talked about this, but I do marketing and she does finance. I was going to ask you what your role is. You know, spreadsheets make me go cross-eyed. It's not my thing. I don't, and I just, but I know exactly what is on that spreadsheet. I know what's happening and she knows what I'm doing with marketing. Like it's it's very um, we share an office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so no it's wall. Good. We're up to speed. <laughs> yeah, but I tend to talk less at things like this. <laughs> that's more her job. But but even that, like, but that's you guys are both comfortable with that. And and sometimes that's what comes up within partners. Maybe both of them want to talk. Yeah. Maybe both of them want to do the marketing. So in asking some of these questions, you work 
some of those things out. Did you ever want to do the marketing? I don't think that's my natural skill. I don't think I'm bad at talking to people or antisocial or anything like that. But I think that's one of her strengths. So I wouldn't say that's, you know, I think that's what she's really good at. So I trust her in that category and, and I don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of maturity going on here. I just have to say it's, it's, it is, I, I feel like when people come in, you almost in the, you want to care for them when they come in and talk about their partnership situations, but you almost want to say sometimes go get healthy and yeah. then come back mm-hmm. to one another. Which but is, I think that's where it's like, it is a relationship. Yeah. It's not just a partnership. It's it's, it's dynamic. A, it's it's a relationship. It's, yeah. it's yeah, you're committing to this person, the same as a marriage, right? You're getting legal yeah. contracts involved. There's I mean, money. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of, of and, and even the the team, like they're like you know the kids. Like yeah. every, there's there's a lot going on in in the microcosm of running a business. Sure. And then the parents have to be on the same page. Yeah, and, yeah. And when all you were of talking that. about when the team, there isn't anybody who doesn't do the heavy lifting. And I thought, well, they must do the heavy lifting. You know, the team must see you guys rallying as well. And that's part of how you build that culture. Let me ask you a question about, so you start out the first store and you're on the same page of we want to do this thing and we want to create beautiful things. But then you move along and you build multiple stores and you have target deals and you start to amass you know, fame and fortune, let's call it. And you might want to check in and say, are we still on the same page? Because those things can affect and influence people. Do you guys have like an annual check-in where you say, hey, let's make sure we're still on the same page? And, or is this so like, I feel like we have day to day. Yeah. It's like daily check-ins and there's daily check-ins, but I do feel like you force us to have like the bigger conversation. Mm-hmm. And probably annually, if not more. But I do feel like sometimes it's hard for us to stop and talk about, again, like realigning in values, what do we want, asking those questions. Um, and sometimes when we first, like sometimes when we revisit it, I'm like, geez, I don't, I don't know. Like, because mm-hmm. you can just get caught up and you're doing sure. what you're doing. Sure. So she's really good at, like stopping us to be like, where are we at? What are the things that if you were to see, again, I'm going to, you know, these hypothetical situations, but two partners come to you and they're thinking about, in whatever business, they're thinking about making this official. And you start to notice a few telltale signs that are like, this this isn't going to work. What are the things that you would you would see that would kind of raise a red flag where you would really have to say, you guys need to check You know, this. it's not, I don't think it's the emotional piece. It's, I think that the red flag is when you hear somebody like automatically rattling off like percentages or automatically rattling off like what I get, Equity what they percentages? get. Yes. Okay. And it's like, it's, that feels like a really bad place to start. I also think in, in in our experience, even just with hiring people, when we come at it from, well, this person's really skilled in um, 
I don't know, XYZ. sales. Yeah. So I'm going to partner with them because I'm good at the creativity and they're good in sales. But your your values aren't aligned again mm-hmm. and you don't want to go the same place and you, it isn't someone you want to be with every day. The value of the sales is really mm-hmm. not that valuable. That's really good advice because you do, that's kind of, if you open any business book, that's what you're going to hear. Make sure that the strengths are, they're focused on the kind of business strengths that you're bringing to it. And they don't talk about your values being aligned yeah. or they talk about the end goal of the business, those values being aligned, mm-hmm. but not kind of who you are And as I think that our strengths and weaknesses or whatever have evolved and changed. Mm-hmm. Sure. Our roles have changed. We both still art direct. And I think that's one of our favorite parts of our job because we started out designing everything and and we don't agree on everything. And sometimes like that's the what how we know something's good is when we both agree. And sometimes I'm like, okay, fine. And she's like, okay, fine. <laughs> In Give the her art that direction piece. Yeah. Let her have that heart or whatever. But um just to be like clear, we don't agree on everything all the time. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So going back to something you mentioned with the percentages, people often think of partnerships as it's two people, 50-50, but there are all sorts of partnerships and some of them are equal shares of equity, some of them are not, some of them are multiple people. I just um, last week was talking to a woman, she's one of three partners They both work full-time in completely different industries, and she's running the day-to-day of the business. And it's, you know, it's a third, each has a third of the business. What are some of the interesting partnership agreements that you've either heard of, or I assume yours was pretty cut and dry. The two of you came together, and it was a 50-50 sort of situation. Am I right? We are not equal partners, okay. <laughs> okay. but I think the interest to your answer your question, what the interesting thing is, we are compensated equally. Okay, because the equity to us doesn't matter because we're not selling the business right now. Okay, so without because it's none of our business, yeah. without giving anything away, I'd love for our listeners to understand what that means because oftentimes people. Co- Um, don't understand that you can get to a partnership and a partnership agreement with unequal equity, unequal pay, because that could be an option to, in the case of the woman I spoke to, the other two aren't taking a a, a salary. She's the only one taking a salary, but they have greater equity in the business. Actually, they don't have greater equity in the business. They have I think it was the amount of money they put into the business was slightly greater, but they She's share the, sweat the outcome. It's yeah. the sweat equity. So how how do you how have you seen other agreements work out or better? Just explain. Yeah, I don't what know because I've never really asked other people about theirs. But for for us, we we brought a different amount of money to yeah. the beginning of the business, which is how we determined the equity. It was literally just math. Yeah. But we are compensated weekly. We make the same amount. We take the same distributions. Like there's n- there's there's no negotiation there. Sometimes it gets complicated on taxes and sure. things. But really, that's just not again. That's just not our focus. So we, I don't, 
I don't know. But I think to answer your question, I think there's lots of different arrangements. Yeah, and you can do whatever you want. Because we just decided that's yeah. what we were doing. We were going to profit share equally, and that's just what we did. So I think it's important for people to know that it doesn't have to be textbook. You can get to the, the same healthy results a few different ways. And I also think that uh, most people will not give you that advice. So if you go sit down with your dad, <laughs> you know, an attorney, there's a very clear-cut formula. Sure. And I think that what we have learned is that you can choose whatever you want and what works for your partnership. And for us, it works for us to be compensated equally because we care equally. I love that. Again, there's a level of maturity that I think the relationship has to be able to um, withstand in order for that to be the case for I'm all the partnership situations are going through my head. And I'm like, yeah, that would work. That would never work. <laughs> right, um, right. So I think it just depends on, on the people. Um, I haven't looked at my notes at all because it's been such an easy conversation um, to just go from one to the next, but there's a few things I don't want to miss. And one of them, and I love asking this question because I feel like it's super helpful for the listener, but what's the thing if you could go back and do over, what's the thing that you would, that you would do over in terms of, and I don't mean choosing each other as partners, but I mean like, gosh, we spent a lot of time on this and had we just, we could have got there sooner had we just done X, Y, or Z, or that was a complete mistake and I would recommend you not do this. In terms of the business or in the terms partnership? Of the business, not the partnership, no. I don't know. I think in terms of company culture, defining our values sooner, mm -hmm. understanding that how much the people matter and that you can't teach work ethic, you can't teach values, mm -hmm. you can't teach somebody to care, but you can teach somebody how to run a spreadsheet. Um, so I think for like speaking to what I said earlier for a long time, we thought, oh, but this person brings this to the table or this to the table and those hires have never worked for us. So hire the person, hire, hire the, the person, the, the quality of person, right? Mm -hmm. How about you, Chelsea, anything? You know, I don't know because I think there's so many things that I would go back and change because hindsight is twenty twenty. Sure. but I think most of what we did was extremely important to learn something. So, you know, we started, we launched, we, you know, we created a wholesale line because we had babies. And I know that sounds crazy, but yeah. it's like, well, how are we going to scale this? Because we can't run the store every day. We have babies. Like, let's go. I mean, it was like the craziest idea that that was going to make it easier. It is crazy, <laughs> but I kind of understand the logic. Right? Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I, there were certain pushes that were not thought through. But it, it stretched us in a way that has made sugar paper really impactful. Yeah. And so I think we are where we are now because we did those big pushes of crazy ideas. And so what's the next big push? Where is sugar paper going to be in five years? Any ideas? I mean, there's so much. I, I, I feel like we, right now, I think we're very, very clear with one another, with our team. Our decisions are very intentional. So I kind of, I'm not sure that I want to tell you where we're going to be in five it's years. It's a secret. I love it. It's not it. a secret. It's that. <laughs> Is we, it a surprise? No, it's that, like, for example, we, one of the things that we learned from working with Target is that 
it's really fun to have luxury paper out in the world and available. And so one of the things we've learned is that when we are making a product line, it needs to be extremely intentional and somewhat precious because we are still bootstrapping this company. Mm. Every product we make has to be really, really well thought through. Whereas when we partner, we can, you know, we're going to make all these things. So right now we're working on an office line mm. to, to have, you know, consumable, really beautiful office products that we would never make in the main line. So that's coming. Okay. Um, Marin is like, has been open for five minutes. So that just happened. So there's always kind of something, but I don't think that we're ready to say, you know, sugar paper world, world domination <laughs> by, you know, it's just, that's not how we do it. It's much more, we go by feel. I think that's probably what makes you guys um, so accessible to other entrepreneurs. I think a lot of women in particular who will be listening to this podcast will be thankful for not, not just your transparency and you're so stinking nice. Like you're, it's so great to see women who, um, have achieved a certain amount of success and who are still caring about one another, caring about, uh, or caring about the customer being intentional with the brand, haven't, been moved to world domination because but I don't they think can. we have to and I think that's the beautiful part of owning the business outright is that we're mm. not on anyone really else's distinction. schedule yeah. so we get to decide that right now this is a really happy place and we're enjoying it I think we would both be pretty um spun out if we were having to hit someone else's targets and we're not in that place right now has that been intentional? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I, I Again, a, another thing to appreciate about what you guys are doing and where you guys are headed. And we're excited to continue to watch you, but you're not off the hook yet. So if you've listened to the podcast, we end each podcast with something called our quick six. So I'm going to ask a question, whatever comes to mind, answer, and I'll ask you each. So you get each. We actually were question. hoping we could do a game where we blurted <gasps> out at the same time. Oh. <laughs> Oh, let's do that. Okay. And you want to see if <laughs> yeah. you, you didn't rehearse anything. No, did we you? didn't. Okay. No. Okay. okay, good. So do you prefer nine to five or flex schedule? Flex. flex. <laughs> Is something going to happen bad if no. you don't have no, the same flex. answer? No. Okay, good, good, good. Um, do you prefer vacationing in the mountains or the beach? Beach. I would say beach too. Okay. But I love the mountains. Yeah, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. That's yeah. a hard one. That's why we live in California. Um, do you prefer working from home or office? office? Office. Do you like working with a team or alone? <laughs> <laughs> team. Team. Um, and I think the hardest question we have, Thai or Mexican food? Mexican. Mexican. That's, That's not hard was, for us. I don't no, think. no, it was good, but uh, see, I was thinking we should go out for Thai, but <laughs> now it's not going to happen. Okay. And then... This podcast is called Liberty Sessions. Our brand is called Liberty. The goal is really to liberate women to do what they feel like they're put on this earth to do and to do it well and to equip them. Um, what does it mean for you guys to be liberated? Not at the same time. Each one no, has to yeah. answer this. For me to be liberated? Yeah, Jamie, go ahead. Um, I think balance, work-life balance like I think being a mom and running a company is always a yeah 
a juggle and trying to keep those two in sync is it's hard. Yeah, or the best I can do when it's when it's pretty close, then then I feel pretty liberated that I get to do both. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. How about you, Chelsea? I agree. I think I'm on a tear right now to try to kind of have the entire company feel that way. Mm. So we work with a lot of women, and I think I'm I'm going to feel liberated if I can feel like I have work-life ba- balance, and so do they. Mm. And it's a tricky thing, right, because we're also trying to grow a company. So that's an, I feel like enjoying where you go – every day and feeling like you can offer that to other people is liberating yourself and others. What a great goal to have, not just for the two of you as company owners, but for every single person that works for you to better understand what that means and to feel so cared for and nurtured by the people that work, uh, that they work for. And what a great example for other entrepreneurs to understand what it means to liberate in that way. Thank you guys for being with us. It's been such a pleasure. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower.